almost daily in popular media, the Muslim world is pinpointed as a homogeneous entity that stands separate and parallel to the similarly imagined West. But even scratching the surface of the idea of a Muslim world reveals the geographic, social, linguistic, and religious diversity of Muslims throughout the world. So what work is performed through the employment and use of this phrase? And in what context did the idea of a Muslim world emerge? Jamil Aydin tackles these questions in his wonderful new book, The Idea of the Muslim World, A Global Intellectual History, published with Harvard University Press in 2017. In it, he weaves distant and interconnecting social, intellectual, and political histories of modern Muslim societies with clarity and detail. Altogether, he reveals the complex story of how the concept is constructed as a device intended to point to a geopolitical, religious, and civilizational unity among Muslims. The term is defined and employed by Muslim and non-Muslim actors alike across imperial and national contexts over the past nearly 150 years. In our conversation, we discuss the justifications for imperial conflicts, the effects of Christian nationalistic liberation and the colonization of Muslims, Orientalism, social Darwinism, the racialization of Muslims, the global role of the Ottomans, European and Russian imperialism, Muslim modernist thinkers, the effects of the world wars, and the changing political landscape of the late 20th century. I'm one of your co-hosts, Christian Peterson, and thanks again for listening to New Books in Islamic Studies. Without any further delay, here's my conversation with Jamil Aydin about the idea of the Muslim world, a global intellectual history. Welcome, Jamil. Thank you for joining us here on New Books in Islamic Studies. How are you? Thank you. Uh, uh, it's a great honor. Um, and how are you? I, I'm great. And uh, I, it was really a great pleasure reading your new book, The Idea of the Muslim World. Uh, I'm, I must say at the start here that uh, this is one of the most comprehensive uh, works that I've seen um, that also very clearly uh, articulates uh, these these kind of key arguments you're making and connects all the dots for the reader. Um, and it it certainly will be one of my um, go-to books in terms of helping people uh, think about uh, Islam in the contemporary uh, moment we live in. Uh, so thank you for, for writing a very uh, accessible and interesting book. Thank you. So um, it's our tradition here at New Books in Islamic Studies to always begin a little bit with the author. So could you tell us a little bit about uh, your background in terms of uh, how you got interested in the study of Muslim societies, perhaps uh, uh, mentors uh, or scholars that have been p- particularly influential in either the, the types of questions you ask or in uh, the, the content you deal with? How, how did you get to where you are? Yes, thank you. It's, it's always a good thing to reflect on one's intellectual genealogy. I would say that my formative undergraduate education at Boazici University was from 1987 to 1991. And this was a very interesting time for both for both Turkey and for the region, uh, Turkey was coming out of uh, of military coup. Uh, we were reading a lot about uh, horrible torture under military regime. Uh, there was uh, in my college um, there was a sense of of questioning issues of democracy and Turkey's experience in the 20th century and and future. But that also in my college, at least in I was in political science, but took courses with sociology. Uh, also coincided with the European debates on modernity. Um, so we, we read a lot of uh, Habermas and, and uh, barely, uh, well, we became familiar with uh, Heidegger and Foucault. But, but what was happening, I think, is that in the, in the late 1980s, the debate was about the meaning of the 20th century, the, uh, the question of European modernity, its colonialism, uh, its, uh, its dark past and how to revived the European Western modern project. And since Turkey, Turkey's existence also relied on this uh, project of Westernization, I was getting that literature through a very good set of uh, professors at, at Boazici. I think we have uh, some of the best uh, mentors. Um, but while this is happening, this uh, it was also the post-Iranian revolution period in the Middle East. Um, this is Iran-Iraq war was about to end. 
Um, so we every night on the, on the television we have, we have seen uh, different issues uh, uh, ranging from Salman Rushdie fatwa um, to the crisis in general of of the, of the Middle East. So uh, as a student, I was also linking that issue of of debate on Turkish modernity and European Eurocentrism with uh, with the crisis of the international order. I think that um, that was uh, at least in my mind uh, connected with each other. Um, and when um, when I was finishing my last year, Saddam's invasion of Kuwait happened. That international intervention um, was, was was led to this big debate. And what is the post Cold War order? I mean, I still this was still the last uh, five six years of the Cold War, um, and followed by the I think Bosnian genocide was a big event because we uh, we had a lot of Bosnians in our school in our neighborhood. I also had uh, very good friends from uh, Kurdish friends from Iraq, Arab from uh, friends from Iraq. Um, so we we could follow all of these developments, but then have uh, have to link them with issues of Eurocentrism, Islam, uh, new question of Islamism, and and the, uh, and this imperfect, messed up world order, and that um, uh, led me to uh, when I finished, led me to find this fellowship and go to Malaysia for an MA in Islamic studies, uh, which was amazing for me because I, I then realized that I live in, in Istanbul in a very Europe-oriented world and Asia didn't exist in my mind. Uh, and I, I still remember the shock of landing in Kuala Lumpur and seeing you know, a, a different type of Muslim society, um, despite all of, of claims about uh, uh, Muslim politics and identity. Uh, it was very unfamiliar um, work for me. Um, so that that's some sort of, I think, the beginning of, of my intellectual curiosities and interests started with these experiences of, of uh, 1987 to 1992. Um, should I continue with MA or PhD or should we? Yeah, maybe I continue with, with the MA or PhD. You, you told me that I could speak. Uh, <laughs> yes, yes. All the way to five minutes. I don't need to have um, copy-ask conversation notes or interruptions. Um, well, if I just complete all the way to the end of PhD, I think when I came back from Malaysia, from the Islamic Studies course, um, with these theoretical interests, I, I wanted to go back to the 19th century Ottoman Muslim intellectual history for my MA work. And inspired by the, by the new post-colonial literature on, on modernity in Europe, uh, find out what how the Ottoman intellectuals responded to the challenge of the West. This is what I was thinking. Um, I was trying to find like the early writings on on modernity and the West, and I was hoping to find something very very critical. Uh, so I worked on the journals, Ottoman journals of eighteen fifties and sixties, eighteen forties to seventies, and to my surprise, I didn't find, at least among the Ottoman elite. Or in the journals of Istanbul, I didn't find that much critical writing. And in fact, there was even not a notion of uh, Eastern Islamic civilization in 1840s, 50s. But I could actually, there I could trace it, the notion of an Islamic civilization emerging in, in 1880s, but not earlier, in 1850s, 60s. In the journals that I worked on, nobody even used the word um, uh, Meden Islam Medeniyet or uh, Hadaratul Islamiyah, I think. Uh, Ottoman Tanzimat project was relying on this notion of a universal civilization where, um, as a cosmopolitan empire, uh, they are part of that European project, but just, you know, at a lower level than perhaps Britain and France. So that actually uh, surprised me. And I wanted to do further research, uh, but I also didn't want to be stuck in this exceptionalism of Muslims and Europeans, I wanted to study a non-European society, India, China, or Japan, their experience, and uh, I'm a Hindu, Chinese, and, and Japanese. So I ended up picking Japan for various reasons, and with that project, I started my PhD work um, at Harvard to do comparative work of um, uh, of thinking about modernity and, and, and Europe in, uh, in the Ottoman Empire and Japan. Uh, but after my coursework, I ended up sort of directly working on modernity. I, working, I worked indirectly on, on pan-Islamism and pan-Asianism. So that led to my first book after my PhD, 
on, on politics of anti-Westernism in Asia, the, this kind of a study of Ottoman and Japanese reflections on the international order and modernity. Um, so while I was doing that uh, book project, uh, September 11 happened. It was in the last year of my PhD, it happened. And I actually had the postdoc fellowship uh, by uh, Harvard Academy that was at that time chaired by um, Sam Huntington. So the person who, who I criticized in my work uh, had an office just across mine at, at, the, um, uh, at the office in um, she was, he was technically, he was too busy, but technically he was our boss or chairman as, as a group of postdoctoral fellows. Um, so in my first book, I was actually trying to challenge this, this notion of, of Muslim exceptionalism, anti Muslim anti-Westernism, showing that Japan also had, uh, China had that kind of similar experience, and it's not about Islam, but it's about the particular um, late 19th or 20th century uh, crisis of international order. Um, so the book, uh, in a way, read broadly in that context, just to see, you know, two non-European empires dealing with issues of uh, white supremacy and, and uh, Christianity and um, unequal relationship and international law. Um, so when I finished that book, uh, if you want to do final a couple of sentences, uh, my initial uh, impulse, my initial desire was to actually uh, follow after 1945, my book ends in an early book of 45, uh, and to see what happened to pan-Islamism, pan-Asianism, pan-Africanism, these three um, globalist projects of world order and uh, modernity, um, and, and bring it all the way to today. Then I realized among all these three siblings, uh, the three non-European internationalisms, uh, pan-Islamism seem to have a life different than, the, uh, than Pan-Asianism and Pan-Africanism. It seems like it came back after Cold War for various reasons. And that inspired this current book to just to look at why Pan-Islamism has a, has a revival at the end of the Cold War, and which has something to do with the particular way Muslims were racialized by race and a particular way the Cold War politics, especially in the Saudi-American alliance, revived uh, an Ottoman-era pan-Islamic internationalism. Yeah. I will stop here. <laughs> no, that's great. And, uh, you know, as somebody who's been a fan of your work for a while, I can see certainly how this book uh, on this, this concept of the Muslim world emerged out of your earlier projects. And I think it certainly uh, informs this one uh, because you really go to, to great le lengths to give us a very global uh, perspective on this this uh, this idea. Um, so maybe maybe you could be, uh, begin in terms of diving into to this project in terms of um, I guess what what is the kind of the key argument you're trying to make with the book uh, for people that are they're coming to the project. Um, uh, thank you. This actually. Um Let's say, let me start with one surprising thing for me is that um, coming from Turkey and from partly from Islamic studies and international relations theory to America and, and always working on issues of the Ottoman Empire and, um, and the Middle East and the West, which inevitably takes you to the question of Islam and Christianity and Islam and the West, these, these big constructs. I wasn't... Um, well-read uh, and, and thinking too much about race theory and question of race and what race meant uh, within empires. Um, and, I, and I think um, over time, I think while finishing my work and comparing um, Muslim experiences to the experience of the people of the yellow race of China, uh, Japan, or um, African, uh, black-skinned African experiences, I realized that actually the Muslimness was highly racialized. And now we see that in America very clearly. Uh, but, you know, going back to 20, 30, 40 years ago, I guess this, because of the power of Orientalism and Muslim modernism, that we were not clearly discussing this, what it means that Muslimness was racialized in, in the imperial time and what was what is its implications um, and I think with uh, 
with that idea in mind, I also uh, benefited a lot from this interdisciplinary conversations I had with a very good group of uh, religious studies scholars who are doing groundbreaking work on um, on Muslim traditions and um, and in Islamic studies. Uh, that's that's your group, I, I assume. Um, and uh, and we at UNC Chapel Hill, we are lucky to have a very good religious studies program and Islamic studies program. Um, and so the, the literature on religious studies on uh, race issues, issue of, of racialization of Muslim international affairs, and, and then my previous background on the question of civilization, civilizational narratives, all came together in this book um, to uh, to tie all of these different. Uh, projects, uh, discursive projects, and uh, they're all tied to the notion of the Muslim world and to truly try to decolonize our thinking about them because it, um, all of these issues of, of being Muslim, uh, definition of Islam as a religious tradition and Islamic civilization, they're all uh, formed in a particular way, aligned in a particular way with the question of empire and, and Muslim dignity in late 19th century, and I wanted to focus more on that that period, and um, and then write a story of of the of this concept that emerged at that time, but still lives after 100 years. The idea of the uh, the Muslim world. Um, I guess that's maybe I, I responded to this question yeah. uh, methodologically, uh, <laughs> but I should <laughs> I should just uh, also note. Um, as a historian, of course, we are very disturbed by um, this grand narratives of Islam and the West, and all of us are very disturbed um, of it. And it seems like hundreds of hundreds of our colleagues are, especially in America, in Europe, and other places, are uh, rescuing history from uh, nationalism, different forms of nationalism, rescuing history from Orientalism and um, and the legacies of, of European uh, power relations, uh, the imperial power relations. And in that project of rescuing, uh, we are all very uh, dissatisfied with the fact that um, 30, almost 35 years adversaries, uh, after adversaries book, um, 30 years, um, there is still, uh, Orientalism is still very powerful. I mean, we assume that, you know, we wrote that book in 78. Most of our scholars are actually, um, our colleagues are, are and our followers of Edward Said, or, or they share the same sentiments with Edward Said. We produce very complex knowledge in, in universities. But in, in media, in the general public, and among the politicians, uh, there's binary narratives of um, Muslims versus the West. Uh, the Muslim exceptionalism is very powerful. And, uh, and I wanted to kind of Write a story that will also uh, intervene in this in this problem that we are dealing with. Yeah, uh, I think you succeed very uh, comprehensively in that. So uh, you're you're trying to contest this kind of um, conflation of the Muslim world as a geopolitical and civilizational and uh, religious entity or uh, or group, and uh, you you kind of start. Uh, laying some of the groundwork um, by demonstrating that in uh, kind of the pre-modern period, empire was usually the basis for conflict, and then there's a shift in the 19th century to where religious communities uh, start to um, play a key role for for the basis of conflict. And uh, you you note two two kind of shifts. Uh, One, uh, the the search uh, or the struggle for Christian nationalistic liberation in places like Greece and Serbia and Romania and others, um, and paired with uh, the the colonization of Muslims in South Asia and Central Asia and North Africa by uh, French and Russian and British uh, imperialists. So uh, this, this I think, is a real key uh, moment here. And so you can, can you help us figure this out? What, what are the effects of these two processes happening uh, kind of simultaneously. Uh, thank you. Uh, I, I, I think this is one of the most important issues that um, we need more work to overcome amnesia. Uh, so we are assuming that Muslims um, uh, always lived as a, 
as a unity. There was a Muslim unity. Muslims were always together. And they ruled over non-Muslims uh, as if empires didn't matter. There's, some sort of, there's always this zero-sum game. You either Muslims rule over non-Muslims and the non-Muslims rule over Muslims. And there, there's always this clash between uh, imagined Muslim political community in relation to the Christian West or the Hindus or, or, or other non-Muslim entities. Um, what I was tr- trying to show that, uh, especially after the Mongolian uh, experience in Eurasia, uh, Muslims lived in, in one or a different form of empire. And most of these empires could not be reduced to uh, the religious markers. Of, so they are not Islamic or theological empires even though they are ruled by um, uh, Muslim dynasties and monarchs, but these Muslim dynasties and monarchs uh, are not acting out a textual project of uh, implementing an Islamic uh, political uh, system, uh, that actually their experiences are always more complex. Than, and they're proud Muslims. Uh, they, they have respect for uh, Muslim values and, and they practice those. But there are also many more. So many of them had respect for Alexander the Great and Genghis Khan. And they don't see the diversity as a threat to them. So they actually cherish and embrace this diversity. Um, and the, the, the Muslims actually lived in close proximity with Armenians and Greeks in Anatolia. But actually more Muslims lived next to non-Christians, so um, Hindus and Buddhists. We, we also don't want to think about uh, Muslim history only in relation to the Christian Europe. There are more Muslims who live in Asia. There are actually more Muslims have an experience of of coexistence with uh, Hindus and Buddhists, um, their encounters with them. Um, And that was the the normal thing in history, that you don't have a nationalist project, that the history of the world is actually the history of empires until the late 19th century. And when European empires come in in different forms, uh, um, uh, there is no immediate response uh, in the form of pan-Islamism or, 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 or Muslim solidarity. In fact, the age of European empires only in the, in the, in the kind of mid-19th century were seen by these different Muslim dynasties as an opportunity to also self-strengthen and empower themselves. And we forget about the experience of the kind of Egyptian, autonomous Egyptian dynasty um, under the Ottoman rule, but the old Ottoman Tanzimat project. Uh, there are, you know, the Persian kingdom, there are so many uh, other Muslim uh, political entities uh, in Africa and other places. Uh, and in the initial uh, encounter with, with European empires, until the sharp racializations in the late 19th century, um, there is you know, there's resistance sometimes, there is the dissatisfaction, people have different projects, um, but there is not an automatic assumption of, of anti-imperialism that many Muslims could live with a, a different form of uh, within an empire, and they could ask for their rights and empowerment within an imperial context. Um, so I, I, I took um, people like Sayyid Ahmed Khan more seriously. There are so many uh, like them, like him. Um, but in that context, the story I think that this what is new about this this project is that to show the connections with this accident of history that one of the big empires uh, ruled by a Muslim dynasty, uh, the Ottomans ruling over uh, large Christian populations in the Balkans um, uh, and believing in, in this kind of civilizing mission, self-civilizing mission of empowering the empire through Tanzimat reforms, have uh, this experience of uh, Christian uh, majority areas from Greece, Serbia, Bulgaria, trying to be independent or to secede. Uh, it's also not truly nationalistic because they all had their own kings, right? That is, it's not a republic project. Even Greece actually adopts a, um, a, a German king. And I was very surprised to know, to see how their experience, their story gets connected to uh, also the story of Indian Muslims particularly. Uh, you know, from 1870s onwards, um, the, the notion that um, the world is a world of em- empowered empires and if uh, and the Ottoman uh, the Indian Muslims are proud of the Ottoman Empire, not because they're, they're, this, this empire is, is oppressing the Christians, but because actually they see this empire doing a better job than the British in terms of allowing uh, Armenians and Greeks to have higher level positions as ambassadors and ministers, 
Uh, they're interested in the Ottoman Empire and later on as a caliphate in this, uh, partly in this geopolitical context of Ottoman-British alliance, but also partly uh, as a way to tell the British is that, uh, look, the, 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 you claim to be more civilized, but there are no Hindus and Muslims in the higher administration. Uh, look at this other empire, the Ottomans, who is ruled by a Muslim dynasty, but it has um, uh, it, it has all these non-Muslim uh, ministers and bureaucrats. That means that it's more inclusive, more respectful, it's a better empire. Um, but that connection also creates this uh, pattern where empires are challenged by the logic of uh, population politics, meaning that the Greeks claim that Christian Greeks can rule, should rule over uh, uh, Greece, and that there's a separation of Greece from the Ottoman Empire. Uh, and we, we forget that there were Muslims in Greece, right? And nobody remembers. Uh, now there are, again, as immigrants, but there are also Muslims in Greece, Ottoman Muslims, who were expelled from this land. So there's a struggle to keep a cosmopolitan empire against the notion of, uh, of, a, of a kind of proto-nationalistic uh, notion of a territory matching with uh, religion and, um, and an ethnicity. Um, so I kind of trace that, that logic uh, and, and show the kind of racialization of Muslimness uh, entangled with the Ottoman story and the Indian story and also the story of other European empires. That's maybe a good place to go because uh, you, you've talked about this idea of racialization, um, but in the book you do a very good job of kind of uh, delineating that process and uh, both kind of what are the, the underpinning uh, social logics for racializing Muslims, but also uh, the, the social consequences. So could you help us think about uh, how Muslims were being conceptualized in these imperial contexts? I thank you. I think this is um, maybe in order, this is a very important part of the story, but uh, just to, to imagine a counterfactual uh, case where um, European empires going around Africa and, and Asia, uh, racializing some people as, uh, as black-skinned, some yellow-skinned in Asia. And in between the yellow-skinned and black-skinned people, there's a large group of Hindus and Muslims. And they could have just called them brown. Like in America, for example, there a lot of uh, Islamophobic violence is also directed against Hindus and Sikhs because they have their brown skin, right? So the American right wing uh, or the racists have this notion that the Muslims are brown skinned. And in, in fact, in 1860s and 70s, there are actually some references of, of, of calling the people between China and, um, and Africa as brown skin, which would actually make racialization of Hindus and Muslims together. But instead, for various reasons that uh, Muslims were racialized through their religion, similar to Jews. And, and we have to understand that, that, uh, that it's the British or the French coming through Africa, seeing Muslims in, in different parts of Africa, marking them as Muslim first, and then coming to India again, Muslim. And it's, it's a large geography. Um, and then in the Middle East and the Ottomans and Arabs are also marked as Muslim. They have very different experiences, but I think the, the, this racialization in the, in the late 19th century became more rigid. It gained uh, theoretical uh, justifications. Uh, and was renowned called uh, Muslims as, as a Semitic religion. So it's like Semitic uh, religion. And there, it also gained legal discriminatory character. So if you are a Muslim in the French Empire, technically um, you could be a citizen. But if you're a Muslim, you can't be a full citizen. Right? That, that, that right is not given to you. So the French just racializes all of its Muslim subjects. Uh, despite his claim for, for republican universality, uh, by saying that if you're following Sharia, you can't be fully citizen, you're just one level below uh, whites. And, and that, of course, that logic led to um, the, the, this whole Algerian separation that, the, that at the end, of course, at the, at the independence of Algeria, uh, all the white settlers, together with Jews, have to just uh, felt uncomfortable and went back to uh, France while. French citizen Muslims were immediately classified as Algerian and then had to had to be in Algeria. So the racialization had this kind of legal logic behind it. And in in in, in India or uh, in the forty percent of the Muslim societies ruled by the by the British Empire or in the Dutch Empire, uh, being Muslim had kind of legal discriminatory aspects 
or legal classification aspects. Um, so, and, and a similar study was in the Russian Empire. So that all of these trans-imperial zones had uh, had racialized Muslims. It referenced to the notions of Christianity superiority to Islam, or white races, Anglo-Saxon superiority of, over the colored races. So I think that this late 19th century moment uh, of of an imperial world uh, produced um, a racialized Muslim world in its in it within it, uh, and then the book kind of talks in detail about how this process happened and how people began to refer to the idea of the Muslim world only in the late 19th century. Yeah. The other uh, maybe uh, component to this from, from, from another side is uh, Muslim modernists are also kind of uh, creating or producing or articulating an, an essentialized Islam in many ways, um, very similar yeah. to uh, imperial practices. So, uh, c- can you talk about some of the the themes and how they're uh, uh, what what are some of the thematic domains that Muslim authors were constructing the Muslim world narrative in? How, how did they articulate yeah. the identity? Yeah, that, that's um, that's an important turning point. So the, the Muslimness is not just ascribed; it's also embraced and internally worked out and redefined. Uh, so the ascribed Muslimness says argues that. Uh, in by 1880, 80% of the Muslims were ruled by European empires, so the other 20% were the Ottomans. And that geopolitical story is very interesting because the Ottoman Empire uh, ruling over Mecca, Medina, Jerusalem had this kind of prime real estate and and, um, and a sultan with a long lineage who also claimed to be caliph. So the, the, the part of the story that I am telling before I got to the Muslim modernism is that the Ottoman sultan, the Ottoman government, in order to get back to the to, to this period of Ottoman-British alliance against Russia, played with the idea that the that the Britain rules over this large Muslim populations in India. Um, so Queen Victoria is the greatest Muslim monarch, um, while the Ottomans are the, the spiritual caliphs. So these two great powers, great Muslim powers, should be in alliance, and that comes out of Ottoman uh, weakness. And many people refer to that idea from Winston Churchill to uh, the, uh, Sultan Abdulhamid's Muslim representative in England uh, named uh, Abdullah Killiam, Abdullah William Killiam. So that, that geopolitics actually is, is completely forgotten now because both sides don't want to remember this moment uh, because we look back to this period from the point of 1914 Ottoman Jihad. So if there is one uh, geopolitical pan-Islamism, it's basically an Ottoman-British alliance project, which turned anti-British in 1914. And the book tells the story that uh, something similar happens with the Saudi-American alliance in 1970s, against 60s and 70s, against Nasser, basically a new uh, pan-Islamic project to defeat Nasser and the Soviet Union, which turned anti-American after Camp David. And but under it, I think the, the more interesting project for the scholars of Islamic studies is that the late 19th century is also the, the period where Muslim reformists are redefining the Islamic world in a new way to overcome their racialization. So racialization by religion gives Muslim scholars an opportunity to refute racial inferiority by showing that Islam belongs to this great civilization. It has all these intellectual resources. And it can um, uh, counter acquisition of inferiority both by missionaries and orientalists. Um, so that's why the Muslim modernism project is uh, is critical, but also very constructive. It, it, it it's a hermeneutic project to redefine Islam, uh, uh, partly in a textual way, saying that the Muslims seem to be declined and colonized, but the real Islam is different. If Muslim, in, a, in a kind of Darwinist Spencerian way, if Muslims are awakened to their the sources of their religion, glory of their past, then they can be awakened and um, and they gain their rights either within the empire to get equality within empire, not necessarily anti imperialists, but also or uh, you know in twenties and thirties they also thought that the Muslim civilization and the Muslim equality deserve them to have their own nations and independence. So this Muslim modernist project. Uh, in a way, reified and embraced the idea of the Muslim world, um, 
uh, for various uh, political projects. So one could be that um, if you're too small, too weak, you can easily be defeated. But if you imagine a global solidarity, uh, you can do collective bargaining. They actually use this word collective bargaining in different points. Um, that if you're a Muslim in Egypt or India or, or Turkey alone, uh, you can't defeat this this alliance of great European racist empires. But if you imagine a Muslim world between China and and, and Europe, um, then then you're more powerful. That the, there's a, some sort of politics of numbers. Uh, and as Faisal Devji talked about that, actually politics of numbers also uh, partly uh, uh, reduced the diminished the fears of Muslims of being a minority in in a kind of future free India uh, in, com- uh, in comparison to Hindu majority. Um, but beyond that, I, I think that this notion uh, of um, creating an Islamic civilization is, was also worked out by a Muslim modernist saying that if Europe had this miraculous story of, of uh, Greece, Roman Empire, then uh, science and Renaissance and reform. Uh, Muslims also had their own um, miraculous story. So the early Islam looks like Greeks and there's, a, there's an emphasis on Andalus. Um, uh, there's an emphasis on the, on the Golden Age uh, and the story of Golden Age and decline is there. So Islam uh, is defined as a civilization. Muslim, Muslim world is defined as a civilization. And in that process, Istanbul is linked to Senegal, that linked to uh, Java. So you imagine all these Muslims are in an interconnected civilization. While this is happening, I mean, as Niall Green and many other colleagues mentioned, it, there's a, um, Sima Alevi wrote a book on this as well, that there's a sort of imperial grid that, strengthen Muslim connectivity through steamships, telegraphs, and printing. Um, and that is, that's not the intention of the empires. And, and so the, ironically, the, the, the imperial age united the Muslims, not only politically. I mean, half of the Muslims' first time in history actually was, was united under British Empire, um, but also uh, in terms of their mobility, their, in, uh, the speed of their travel, their connectivity increase. So more more Muslims began to come to Hajj. Uh, the the numbers to Hajj increased almost ten times. Um, journal subscriptions uh, were, were were actually giving people a sense of pride. So Rashid Rida could publish Al Manar and send it all over um, Russian Empire, British Empire, French Empire, and he actually is is aware that uh, this uh, uh, journal in Cairo under this Ottoman British rule, right? Egypt was still under Ottoman rule and Rishtuza was actually from Syria, so from the Ottoman lands. But he's realizing that the Islamic world is bigger than the Ottoman Empire, or, or even bigger than the British Empire. I mean, um, so his, uh, his journal actually reaches to, to Delhi, Bombay, or Calcutta, and even, even to Japan or Southeast Asia. So all of these you know, are not all words. There's also a kind of a felt experience of uh, being better connected as Muslims from all over the world. But racialization gives Muslims a reason to talk back, to create a narrative of history. And in that narrative of history, uh, in addition to civilization, they also emphasize kind of a historic conflict between um, imperial West and, uh, and, and the victimized Muslim world. So there's suddenly crusaders are linked to modern colonialism, and that that link wasn't always there in, in their mind. Um, one other aspect that I, I emphasize that, that is uh, highly overlooked is the fact that early pan-Islamists are very cosmopolitan and um, globalists in terms of their alliances with theosophists, their sympathies with Japan and China or, or Indian, Hindu, Hindu Indians, uh, or their interest in African, um, other non-Muslim Africans. Um, so there, there is some sort of sense of internationalism uh, beyond the Muslims, and that we shouldn't forget about that aspect, uh, of course. Um, but what, what does happen overall, of course, is that uh, uh, the generation of Sayyid Amir Ali, who wrote the book The Spirit of Islam, uh, basically redefines what it means to be Muslim, how to talk about Islam as a universal, universal religious tradition, um, and as a civilization, because I, I, I you know, a hundred years before Sayyid Amir Ali, no Muslim would write a book 
called the spirit of Islam. There's actually quite a confidence, right? That you have the you know what the spirit of Islam is. But he has to write it because he's actually responding to um, accusations of, of um, Christian missionaries and Orientalists. Um, yeah. Now, uh, there's a great deal of uh, detail that, that's going through the book here that we probably won't be able to get to. Um, but you, you proceed into the, the, the kind of post-Ottoman, uh, early 20th century where new shifting uh, political uh, entities and uh, networks of power, uh, different types of um, propagandist writing are happening. Um, can, you, can you tell us a little bit how the Muslim world narrative uh, began to be operationalized um, in, the, in the early 20th century? Oh, uh, uh, the, the, so this takes the second half of the book, what happens to the idea of the Muslim world after World War I. Um, so the book's main narratives uh, argue that Sultan Abdulhamid II, uh, even though he's associated with this kind of anti-Western pan-Islamism, was actually not um, anti-imperial or anti-Western. He was actually trying to use this no- new notion of the Muslim world to... Uh, empowered Ottoman geopolitical uh, significance in the eyes of the British, but others, but also to imagine an imperial world in which Muslims form some sort of a peaceful glue. Uh, because we forget that the generation of Abdul Hamid could not imagine that the imperial world will end. We ought to always look at look back at history from the perspective of nationalism, but Abdul Hamid's generation still, you know, even in 1913, just before World War One. Um, you wouldn't believe that the, these all of these empires are going to be are going to disappear. So there's a question of racial equality uh, and equality of the Ottomans in international law, uh, but that you could always solve them within the imperial framework. So what uh, what changes is actually this this accident of World War One, um, which preceded by uh, uh, gradual Ottoman British tensions. Um, but these tensions necessarily not leading to World War One. Uh, so if you take the World War One, starting with the uh, Italians invading Libya, which leads to this big pan-Islamic campaign, uh, then the Balkan Wars, uh, the Serbian foreign minister says that uh, they actually get encouraged by no European power in stopping Italians invading Libya, Ottoman Libya. That then decided that, well, maybe they should just attack the Ottomans as well. So there's actually a connection between these two events. Uh, and... Uh, an Ottoman defeat in the Balkan Wars, pushing all these Muslims away. So the kind of Balkan area becomes only Christians and the Muslims have to go to the Ottoman lands. At that point, we see a peak in, in pan-Islamic mobilization um, where Indian Muslims instrumentalize this idea that the British Empire has a moral responsibility to intervene and help Turkey, both in, in, uh, in Italian against Italians and also in the Balkan Wars. The reason is that the British Empire is the biggest Muslim empire in the world. So this is completely forgotten, this, the status of the British Empire as the biggest Muslim empire. But because of racism, of course, Britain does not intervene, partly because of racism. Uh, they, they say, well, yes, we are the biggest Muslim empire, but we have to stay neutral and there isn't much I can do. Um, so thus, when, uh, when Germans are seeing this, there's a different instrumentalization appears in the minds of Kaiser Wilhelm. Say, surprised that Ottoman Empire can be so powerful at the time of their defeat. They are defeated in the Balkan Wars, but they are ever more popular in India. Uh, and so when the war starts and these Germans find themselves uh, against the British, um, Germans want uh, Ottomans on their side because they think that um, they are also racist and orientalist in some ways. They think that the Muslims will never accept a Christian ruler uh, if they take the Ottomans on their side and use Ottoman caliphs' credentials um, as a leader of the Muslim world, then they can provoke Muslims to revolt against their rival empires. So they they have this idea, and, and some of the young Turks have that idea too. So it's actually not the uh, not the traditional Sultan Abdul Hamid, but it's the young Turks who instrumentalize. Uh, the idea of the Muslim world and the Ottoman Empire status as the kind of spiritual head of the Muslim world to rebel against the British. And in, in, in some ways, they're basically uh, uh, 
pragmatically utilizing this idea, even though six months before the 1914 jihad, Ottoman diplomats were still uh, offering Britain uh, a project of alliance, saying that if you ally with me, then my caliph will tell Indian Muslims to be even more loyal to you. But what I told in, in the chapter on World War One is that despite the Ottoman jihad proclamation, uh, British, French, Russian Muslims remain loyal to their empires. In fact, there is this counter-proclamations, and the Ottomans realized that you can't really um, ask Muslims to revolt. Um, but what what changes everything is not the beginning of the war, but the end of the war. The Balfour Declaration, Saez Picot, and, um, and the Britain, perceived sense of Britain betraying its promise to Muslims who fought and died for them. Uh, because in 1914, the, you know, the Muslim soldiers or the Muslim elites in India who fought for Britain even against Ottomans, uh, argued that we fight for you, but you have to keep your promise that don't, uh, you know, don't interfere in holy lands, do not uh, uh, touch the caliph, uh, that the caliphate has to remain. Uh, there's a similar sense of a social contract, whether for the French Muslims and uh, the Russian ones, although Russian story changes dramatically after Bolshevik Revolution. So I, I find, I, I put more emphasis on the end of the war, not the beginning. Uh, and the it, that's why I, I said at the moment of, of Woodrow Wilson and Lenin, the biggest social movement, um, social mobilization in 1920, 21, 22, um, is, is a pan-Islamic movement, uh, which is a, a kind of a return to this uh, non-jihadist Abdulhamid era of Turkey and Ottoman Empire utilizing Indian Muslims for peaceful purposes, pressuring London, sending them military and financial aid, or financial aid or medical aid. Uh, uh, and I think without that Indian Muslim mobilization, um, Turkey wouldn't have uh, negotiated uh, the, the foundational treaty of Lausanne uh, in 1922 or 23 with, with British Empire. I think Britain, uh, in addition to having military problems against the Turkish War of, uh, of Independence, um, were really worried about even Hindus and Sikhs joining Muslims in India uh, in support of the Turkish War of Independence. Um, uh, so you can see that that instrumentalization worked very well and, and for, for Turkey's uh, political interest. Although it starts with, with jihad, but it turns peaceful. It, but it, it, it is important. I think this is the peak moment of pan-Islamism, which is followed by this big uh, disaster and a disappointment where Turkey abolishes the caliphate in March second, nineteen twenty four. And you 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 explore this uh, uh, moment of the abolishment of the caliphate, um, and also look at kind of this interwar period where uh, there are several key, key theorists uh, thinking about uh, what an Islamic state should look like. Uh, what are the the, the kind of underlying uh, principles of uh, that kind of uh, political entity um, uh, and as well as where Muslims, uh, Muslim populations fit into kind of networks of power during uh, World War II. Um, just to keep the listeners up to speed here, um, you're going to have to read the book uh, if you want to hear, uh, find out more about that. Um, and if you don't mind, Jamil, I want to, uh, kind of jump to the uh, post-Second uh, World War period where popular sec secular nationalism um, is becoming widespread um, and we have Muslim world narrative uh, fitting into decolonization efforts and emerging, emerging national settings. Uh, can, can you talk about uh, where the Muslim world narrative uh, fits in here? How, how is it relevant yeah. again? No, but, so the, thank you. Post-war is 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 a, is a crucial turning point where, in some way, Muslim world narrative was about to disappear. It looked like to, to disappear. In uh, and I, I mentioned this conference at Duke University in early 1960s, where people discuss, you know, this scholars of Islam and Orientalists and, and IR theorists, you know, what is the role of Islam in international affairs, and they conclude that none. They actually make fun of Bernard Lewis at the time. Bernard Lewis was still racist, apparently, and, and said that 
uh, Islam is like communism. They have this fanatic allegiance and they will never be, uh, they will always be anti-Western. But they caught him to make fun of him, saying that, you know, that there are crazy people like that. But when we look at uh, facts on the ground, uh, there is no explanatory value to Islam. You look at Nasser, Iraq, Pakistan's foreign policy, all these post-colonial Muslim nations are, are different goals and different objectives. And nobody is calling for a caliphate. Nobody is calling for, for some sort of Islamic state. This is kind of a low point. Um, so I have this puzzle is that how did it then come back? You know, why, why was this nostalgia for the caliphate uh, even stronger in the, in the 80s and 90s? Uh, and uh, there I, I kind of work on the story of uh, regional Cold War plus the global Cold War where against the, the Nasser's alliance with the Soviet Union and Nasser's challenge to, to Saudi Arabia the Saudi king Faisal becomes like the caliph of the Cold War, um, in a way trying to revive older networks of pan-Islamism with Medina University, with the uh, Muslim World Council, bringing um, uh, Indian Muslims who are disillusioned by the project of Pakistan, uh, such as Mehdudi, to help bolster Saudi Arabia's soft power and image, and, and try to form an internationalism relying on all the templates of the Muslim world in order to strengthen Saudi Arabia's international position with regard to Nasser. I think he felt threatened by Nasser. But only after 67, of course, he's also thinking that this kind of pan-Islamic internationalism in alliance with Torbordism would also help empower and uh, empower the Palestinians in the sole Palestine question. So there's before 67 against Nasser, but after 67 is actually in cooperation with Egypt in order to help Palestine and and, um, and solve some of the regional questions. Um, so th- this story then uh, becomes very interesting where uh, I, I was very surprised to find it out where Ember Sadat uh, became almost like uh, Ataturk in, uh, or the Young Turks in 1975-76. After 73, I didn't realize 74, Ember Sadat had a great reputation. Um, he's a dark-skinned Egyptian leader, he fought, uh, you know, this this war that n- nobody thought Egypt will fight. So there's this amazing summit in 1974, Lahore summit, where Pakistan, Egypt, and Saudi Arabia, uh, their, their leaders apparently appear saying that, look, we, maybe we create this new Muslim bloc, that Egypt has the population and the army. Well, Egypt has the army, popula- Pakistan has the population, and uh, now the new Arab oil money come together uh, to form an international pressure group to help Palestinians and other oppressed Muslims. So there's this kind of subaltern Muslim interest in this project. So Camp David, I, I was very surprised to see how Camp David changed a lot because I think people expected that this pressure will produce something for the Palestinians where uh, in some ways Camp David became something like Lausanne Treaty with Turkey did, right? The Turkey benefited from the pan-Islamic public opinion and mobilization to get a very good deal uh, for the Turkish Republic, uh, but then uh, it f- seems like it did betray the, the Muslim world that it benefited from, uh, imaginary Muslim world and its mobilization. And Egypt seemed to be doing something similar with the Camp David, that, that I think uh, Sadat's uh, negotiating power also comes from this, this great excitement about new geopolitical and economic realignment um, in, among Arab and Muslim countries. And after Camp David, there's this, this chaos where, like, what happened? We, we thought that uh, this, this regional unity will produce something good. And it's in that context, of course, a couple of unexpected turning points happens, like the Iranian Revolution, Soviet invasion of Afghanistan, uh, which, um, which leads to even further weakening of alternative secular internationalism like pan-Africanism, socialist internationalism, Turkwardism, and many more Muslims began to believe that a new internationalism should rely on the mobilization and power and geopolitical unity of the Muslim world. And that's the 1980s story. Um, and that that makes my book very pessimistic in a way that, that once that happens and... Um, this, you know, from hostage crisis to Salman Rushdie affair, this appeal to Muslim solidarity revived all kind of racial tropes in Europe and America, and that's why that's why I think the the 
the, the second book Edward Said wrote on Orientalism covering Islam is 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 partly uh, also showing his uh, uh, his um, dissatisfaction with surprise that Islamophobia and Orientalism became worse you know, compared to 1978. Edward Said's book published was published just before the Iranian Revolution. And post-Iranian revolution, post-hostage crisis, racism against Arabs and Muslims increased. Uh, so we, we, we enter in a period where there's a symbiotic relationship between pan-Islamists appealing to Muslim unity and this kind of complex politics in the region in, in, uh, and uh, racial, re-racialization of Muslims in uh, European and American media. I think we might still be leaving the, the kind of continuation of that period of, of 1980s today. Yeah, and you um, you kind of make a nod at the end uh, of the book uh, to the the fact that uh, both Islamophobes and groups like ISIS uh, share uh, a very similar Muslim world narrative. Um, so maybe as kind of a final thought, um, can can you tell us um, wh- what what should we make of a Muslim world narrative at, in our current moment and? How might your historical genealogy help us understand it today? As a historian, everything my book, of course, is, is trying to tell Muslims and non-Muslims to um, reflect on the amnesia that they have, to to reflect on on the different turning points. Um, uh, and that's the, the general the project about genealogy to actually understand where certain ideas and concepts come from, how they change over time, so that it can be fictionalized, it can be undone, and we can see the lost features of different moments and different uh, trajectories. So oh, let's say if even, even if there is a, some sort of a seeming similarity between first racialization of Muslims in the age of empires in 1880s and the re-racialization of Muslims in 1980s, or the first pan-Islamism of Abdul Hamid and the second or the third pan-Islamism of King Faisal and, and, and Khomeini, um, the differences are actually very important. One is that uh, in the earlier imperial one, uh, the, the assumption is very cosmopolitan. Abdulhamid did not try to impose Sharia on non-Muslims, or uh, you, you know, he was a cosmopolitan figure whose primary job was to keep a cosmopolitan empire alive. He had he had very proud uh, non-Muslim uh, servants and bureaucrats, and he couldn't have imagined, for example. Uh, despite his reputation as a man who did the Armenian massacres of 1890s, but he wouldn't have imagined the the ethnic cleansing of Armenians from Anatolia or Greek-Turkish population exchange. I think these were unimaginable for him, even even as late as 1880s. Um, so we see this multiple partitions and the end of the cosmopolitan imperial legacy within those hundred years where Turks and Greeks and Armenians are sorted out of course, the Arabs and Jews are sorted out in, in some ways in the Israel-Palestine story. But, more, you know, uh, more importantly, the, the largest group of Muslims in, in South Asia with nationalism, the, the, the partition of Pakistan, India also separated people out. So there's this one move away from uh, inclusive imperial structures to ethnic nationalism. The second big move, of course, is the significance of South Asian Muslims being replaced by Arab, uh, and then later on Persian Muslims. So the kind of the center of, of, of people talking about Islam moves to the Arab lands and and to, uh, and, and to to Iran as well. Initially, it was just the, the Ottomans and the Indian Muslims, and then now it's a very different actors are are out there. Um, but within those stories, I, I think what is usually forgotten is that there is a lot of Cold War ideological project invested in pan-Islamism of the new one, right? That, that Islamism becomes an ideology. It's a, it's a vision of, of a complete system of reordering a nation state, telling citizens what to do. That I think early pan-Islamism never had that kind of a thing. And I, I kind of refer to the fact that Ottoman caliphs listened to opera music and they were interested in painting. And the last Ottoman caliphs Hobby was painting his daughter's uh, uh, portraits. Um, this could have been unthinkable, right, for for a caliph, uh, caliph today, whoever claims to be caliphate. They have no concept of these practices. 
Um, so with that, I, I want to show the historicity of what it uh, of, of Muslim politics to liberate um, some of the good actors. And I, I talk less about good actors. I, I feel bad about it. You know, the subaltern Muslims who are oppressed, who, who search for their rights. It seems they invest on on, some, on, on medium Muslim powers and the kings like the, the Ottomans and Egyptians and Saudis and uh, and Pakistanis, but feel betrayed by them, right? That the, the states have to prioritize the interests of a state over the interest of oppressed Muslim populations. Um, so by doing that, I also want to empower uh, those people who want to still be proud of their uh, Muslim values in, in terms of politics. I don't mean to tell that nobody should have any politics based on their religious values. Um, so in my story, but I also talk about how a particular form of, of imaginary Muslim world politics uh, was so, so instrumentalized by um, state actors and imperial actors uh, that it always led to more and more divisions and disillusionment and it actually produced the opposite of what it's supposed to do, some sort of creating Muslim political unity, that the Muslims are actually uh, more divided politically than ever, because I think the project itself uh, is is unrealistic, that you know, we can't assume that uh, Muslims are not differentiated by any kind of sense of class, uh, gender, or um, political desires. And um, so... I, Last word, probably, that to see that the symbiotic relationship uh, that some of the pan-Islamic project had with the racialization of Muslims through uh, religion and geopolitics, and to uh, break that symbiotic tie, so that to help fight against racialization in a better way, um, also to kind of imagine a different, more uh, more emancipatory, more free form of Muslim politics beyond uh, the existing frameworks that uh, that is suffocating uh, many forms of imagination. Well, Jamil, you, you've done a wonderful job with the book, and uh, I do hope that listeners will, will pick it up, and uh, I, I wish you the best success with the book. I was very excited also as a sinologist to see uh, China included there on several occasions. Th- thank you for that. Uh, uh, yes. And Japan too, right? And Japan too, of course, right? There's there's few of us working in East Asia thinking about Muslims, but uh, I'm, I'm glad you're doing that. Um, where where do you uh, see your research going now? What kind of things are you uh, working on today? What might we see from you in the near future? Uh, so uh, two projects: one in 1971, uh, 70s, 18, 90s, 80s, and 90s. I want to. Um, Focus globally more on on the transition from 1970s to 1980s. Uh, a lot is happening, and, and um, uh, the, you know, the, just the last decade of the Cold War uh, prepared the background for the the crisis of the international order we are dealing with today. Um, so I want to look at that carefully. I cooperate with uh, uh, my colleague Timothy Nunan, who wrote a book on humanitarian invasion. He's also working on uh, similar topics that I work on. Um, he's working on the kind of divergence between Sunni and Shia Muslim internationalism. Um, I also work on kind of tr- w- the, the details of, of this critical left Muslim, uh, the transition from the critical left Muslim political visions to a more conservative ones in, in the 1980s and 1990s. Um, this, so this is one project. The other one is 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 back on the 19th century. I want to more more on, on in details on uh, on the end of the cosmopolitan empires, the struggles over international law. Um, so there are some smaller projects on Ottoman Empire and international law and how they, in what way they try to turn the caliphate into a, an international legal project if they could ever um, do it. Uh, there's more interest on this topic. So we uh, we have my colleague here at Duke who published a book on the end of the caliphate, Mona Hassan. Maybe that will be um, of interest for you as well. Uh, but I I was asked to think about um, whether caliphate 
was ever turned into a project of, of international law, it's an international legal concept. And I want to answer that question by uh, working in detail of, of that, that issue. Um, so there are other globalist projects as well um, that I'm working on. So I'm also doing some service to the field and I, I will uh, co-edit this series on global history at Columbia Press. Um, so I'm reading really interesting manuscripts by my colleagues. Well, Jamil, uh, good luck on all of those projects. And uh, thank you for your continued efforts in, in making us expand our uh, the domains where we, we try to think about these questions related to Islamic studies. This is a great, great uh, book. Uh, thank you, Christian. And uh, I hope to talk to you about on uh, more on East Asia and uh, Muslim societies. That was my conversation with Jamil Aydan about his great new book, The Idea of the Muslim World, A Global Intellectual History, published with Harvard University Press in 2017. Thanks for joining us again on New Books in Islamic Studies.